Into the Anthropocosmos with Ariel Ekblah. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. No, we haven't gone all new age on you, unless you agree that humankind's transition to an interplanetary species is truly new age. Ariel Ekblah and her many colleagues at the Space Exploration Initiative are expressing what she calls principled optimism about our future through the creation of innovations they believe will support life across the solar system as they enhance life back here on Earth. We'll enjoy a wide-ranging conversation with her in moments, and we'll sample the projects documented in her new book, Into the Anthropocosmos. Want to win a copy of it? You'll get your shot if you enter the new space trivia contest that Bruce Betts will tell us about. Bruce also has news of an upcoming total solar eclipse for some of you. I'm producing this week's show hours before the scheduled launch of NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, the mission we talked with Nancy Shabo about last week. We wish the DART team the greatest of success. We have a terrific collection of mission resources at planetary.org. NASA has condemned Russia for conducting an anti-satellite test that put other spacecraft, including the International Space Station, in jeopardy. Other nations are adding to the criticism. It's one of the stories you'll find in the November 19 edition of The Downlink, our free weekly newsletter. You'll also find a description of new evidence indicating that a certain near-Earth asteroid might be an old chunk of the moon. They just want to democratize space. In fact, that's the title of an essay by Space Exploration Initiative founder and director Ariel Ekblah. It's also the key to understanding the mission of SEI at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The work may be best described and illustrated in her new book. Its full title is Into the Anthropocosmos, a whole space catalog from the MIT Space Exploration Initiative. As soon as I saw it, I knew I'd want to talk with Ariel. That conversation happened a few days ago. Ariel, thanks very much for joining us on Planetary Radio, and uh, congratulations. I don't know exactly when the anniversary took place, but I think our, isn't the Space Exploration Initiative five years old uh, about now? Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely a delight to be on the show with you. And yes, you did hit it on the mark. We are five years old. We just passed the anniversary in May and then really celebrated this September at the return of the fall term for MIT. Then congratulations indeed. The very first line in your introduction to the book is this, we stand at the cusp of interplanetary civilization. Is that belief behind not just this book, but the entire institute? It really is, Matt. I think it really is. And we have this immense set of opportunities, but also responsibilities, which is why we use the term anthropocosmos to hearken back to the Anthropocene and our understanding wow. as humans of the role that we've had in the Earth system for good and for bad now, as we understand it, certainly in the context of COP26 and climate change discussions going on this fall. But our use of the term anthropocosmos is to communicate this mix of the grand opportunity standing at the cusp of interplanetary civilization, 
what this will look like for the artifacts and the technologies that we build at MIT and want to bring along with us, but also the responsibilities as space citizens as we venture out further beyond Earth. Is part of this then to build, not to quote other uh, science fiction that is currently uh, underway, a foundation for this new society that expands across the universe, across the cosmos? As a true Foundation fan, I might have to wink at you over audio and say, well, not just one Foundation, but there are two. No, sadly, ah, yes, we, do not yet, we do not yet have a twin for the Space Exploration Initiative, but we do have many wonderful sister organizations actually around the U.S. and around the world now. But yes, this is a moment of Foundation building. There's so much precedent setting that's about to be done in this decade as we return to the surface of the moon in a really big way. Lots of stakeholders eyeing, you know, activity on the moon as we think about urban planning at planetary scale. What does it mean as we are about to see a proliferation of commercial space habitats in low Earth orbit and then eventually pushing out towards Mars and human settlement on the surface of Mars, even as we know that Elon Musk and others are already already pushing us towards. So there's very much a sense of foundational precedent setting in our work. And I suspect that if the, if you did have a second foundation and and told me about it, you'd probably have to kill me. Uh, <laughs> for for you Isaac Asimov fans out there, you also mentioned here and there uh, up in the front of the book uh, Gene Roddenberry, and in this yes. particular case, wanting to create his concept of at least a piece of his concept of Starfleet Academy. Is that also what you hope the SEI might be uh, a first step toward? This is very much our North Star long vision goal. And part of it is because Starfleet Academy was where the space cadets go to learn. And we are anchored at MIT, building provocative next generation space technology. This is where we are learning. But it was also where the technology of the enterprise was built. And so in addition to the classes and the academic approach to aerospace, which MIT has had an incredibly storied history of over the last several decades, we are also building the artifacts of our sci-fi space future. We take an incredibly creative community. The Space Exploration Initiative is unique in that it unites scientists and engineers like ourselves, I'm trained as a scientist, but also artists and designers and philosophers into this community of designers and builders that helps us realize a really richly envisioned future for life in space. And we are very much inspired by that Starfleet Academy mentality of inclusivity, creativity, um, a certain bonding between the team, and this special place of learning and real life building for our sci-fi space future. To get into the book a bit more, into the Anthropocosmos, full name, A Whole Space Catalog from the MIT Space Exploration Initiative. There's an obvious tip of the hat or of, of the space helmet here to <laughs> Stuart Brand, the great Stuart Brand in his whole Earth catalog, which I'm sure was entirely intentional. In fact, I think he's mentioned in the book. It was indeed. And, you know, we have many of these references as you've, as you've raised. We really are standing on the shoulders of giants, whether it's ideas from Roddenberry, prior art at NASA, or the Stuart Brands of the world. This is a, a hat tip to Stuart Brand. He, of course, petitioned NASA to release the first whole image of the Earth, which he later put on uh, two subsequent 
versions, the front covers of his Whole Earth catalog. And what we loved about that was this appreciation of the way that that image sparked the environmental movement in the United States, you know, in the 60s and 70s, sparked so much of an appreciation for the fragility of our planet and the specialness of Earth as a blue marble. And so we wanted to say, even with this book, back to our discussion of principled optimism, we're building for the future, we're building for space, but we're anchored or grounded in an appreciation for Earth and Earth citizens and very much a tip of the hat to Stuart and the whole Earth Catalog community through that. The very first one that's listed in the book, it's another tip of the hat or tip of the space helmet to David Bowie because it's called ZG Stardust or Ziggy Stardust. Indeed. So this is a Nary Oxman original, uh, came out of Nary's group Mediated Matter. This is a great example of how the Space Initiative operates. We are supporting these individual lab groups out in the world with their concept. And this project brought... Uh, silkworms onto the parabolic flight to explore the novel fabrication of material in microgravity. So we studied or the students studied how the silkworms reacted to this novel and strange environment, how their spinning and weaving patterns differed. And of course, like so much of Neri's beautiful work, this profound callback to Ziggy Stardust and a cultural touch point as we're thinking about the creation of new cultural artifacts for space. Uh, when I think about silkworms, a parabolic flight, a zero-g flight, you only get a few seconds, of course, of microgravity. Yes. I, I, and I know you've done many of these flights as part of the initiative, but I know that you're also looking forward to getting substantially longer time in zero-g or microgravity. Aren't you uh, working with some of the companies that uh, we all hear about? We do indeed. So we are really quite lucky to work with a bevy of new space age startup companies. Nanoracks is one of our close partners. They've integrated several payloads for us to the International Space Station. We fly on a SpaceX rocket. We've worked with uh, Blue Origin for suborbital tests on their new Shepard platform. And these are increasing duration of time opportunity to really go from the 15 or 20 seconds of this beautiful weightless, you know, parabolic arc that you get on the on the parabolic flights to three minutes of sustained microgravity during the coast period on a New Shepard suborbital rocket to days or months or even years at a time, depending mm. on uh, how you can book the payload space on the International Space Station. And we have had the immense privilege of working across all of those different platforms. And I will tell you, Matt, that we have our eyes set on the moon. Uh, within the next couple of years as well. Wow. Something else to look forward to. Let's go on to another one of these. And this one caught my eye, but it also caught the eye of my wife because it ah. just seemed that the applications potentially for the less able on earth yes. really jumped out at her. And it's, you call it, or the, the creators call it space human. Tell us about it. Mm -hmm. So this is the brainchild of Valentina Sumini, a former postdoc with the MIT Media Lab and now currently a research affiliate. She is a space architect, an amazing designer, and she worked with a visiting student, Manuel Musilo, uh, from Rome, to design a prosthetic, pneumatically actuated tail. So one of the, the interesting insights that Katie Coleman, as our astronaut mentor, taught us in the early days of the Space Initiative was that astronauts' legs are really 
terribly overpowered, right? So you can just push off with the lightest feather touch in the International Space Station and you'll zoom across the chamber. And so instead of the strength of legs, what astronauts really wanted was a third hand. They wanted some way to stabilize themselves while still having both hands available. And so Valentina took interesting forms of inspiration from the sea, from seahorses, from other creatures that have interesting tails, and ultimately designed this system where the tail is able to articulate and reach around behind her and grapple onto something. In the current incarnation, of course, we're still improving and iterating on the prototype. She's even worked with some of our uh, staff engineers to add a camera on the tip of it so that it can do image detection and a little bit of computer vision processing to better help it grapple. The idea being that this is a prosthetic for space. Now, when you mentioned the promise of less able-bodied people also being able to participate, we just had the immense pleasure of collaborating with the Astro Access team for mm. another zero-gravity flight this fall. So this is a new nonprofit. George Whitesides uh, and Ann Capusta are working on this amazing project, and they've They've announced it, that we had their flight. We flew with them for ambassadors uh, who are blind, deaf, or have mobility challenges to actively be able to participate in the future of spaceflight. And this tale is one of the one of the projects that we might look at in the future as we continue to partner with the Astro Access team and think about how we can really turn what are sometimes thought of as disabilities into hyper abilities or um, diverse abilities, uh, as Dana Bowles would say in the context of really widening access to spaceflight. I am so glad that you brought up Astro Access because I am I live not too far from UC San Diego uh-huh. where the Center for Arthur C. Clarke Center for the Imagination is and those folks have been on the show and I saw that Eric Viri uh, yes. was the regular <laughs> sort of medical officer on some mm-hmm. of on those flights for Astro Access and that must have been thrilling. I, of course, he was also there when a, a certain well-known uh, physicist, uh, late physicist, uh, also got to uh, uh, experience uh, zero G. I'm assuming you're saying Stephen Hawking. Yes, I am indeed. <laughs> yes, I, I and I had the perfect, almost karmic introduction to bringing up space human yesterday because I was at the San Diego Zoo watching the monkeys with their long tails. <laughs> there you perfect, go. Perfect, though. And another one that I picked largely because of its beautiful illustration, but also because it says something about learning from the past, including the past history of of architecture and and what has worked in terms of creating structures down here on the surface of of Earth. Uh, It's called Persian Domes. So this was actually an inspired project from an intern that came and joined the SEI for a summer, uh, advised by Valentina Sumini, who we've mentioned a couple times now. But Masa, the graduate student, she was a a master student in a space architecture program based out of Houston at the time. She's now a space architect in her own right and a collaborator and a you know a colleague in the industry. She came to us. Uh, she is Iranian with this passion for learning and building and incorporating heritage architectural built environment heritage from her culture into the future of space exploration. And I think this is why it's so important when we think about democratizing access to space and the voices that we do welcome into the creative practice, because it's it's a stunning project. As you mentioned, you know, looking at the renderings that they did, thinking about the structural considerations for a Persian bathhouse inspired dome on Mars, 
it really sparks the imagination for different ways that we can both protect humans in an extreme environment, but still delight them in the way that we do with architecture on Earth. And I think that's a little bit of what we're missing right now with space architecture and that for good reason, we've been so focused on the survivalist mentality that we have stayed for a very long time with a very particular paradigm of what architecture looks like in space, the International Space Station, uh, pressure cylinders, uh, cylindrical objects. It is time for us to push the boundary a little bit and think about architecture that can delight humans for the future of our interplanetary civilization. I won't say that I saved the best for last, (laughs) but it does happen to be one of your projects, one that you have uh, been a big part of. Uh, Tell us about Tesserae. Ah, well, thank you for asking. This is, you know, asking a parent to wax poetically about their child. It's easy to do. <laughs> this was my PhD research at the Media Lab, co-advised by Aero Astro. And my idea was to take this notion of building grand space architecture. How do we enable the ring worlds of science fiction, the grand space stations that we see in 2001 Space Odyssey, and allow ourselves to build them in the very real setting of congressional budget whims and administrations that change space priorities and make it hard to ever get the cost sink behemoth funding for a megastructure, a megastructure at scale. And so what I developed was a modular habitat concept. I have dubbed it Tesserae, very much inspired by ancient Roman mosaics and the small glass tiles that comprise a mosaic, that make up a a whole that is bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm. So I create these tiles, uh, pentagons and hexagons, and you can pack them flat for their ride to orbit. So they pack very condensed within the rocket. Once they're released in an orbiting microgravity environment, they have powerful magnets on their edges that draw the tiles in towards one another and click, 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 click into place. I'm gesticulating with my hands here for folks that can't see me <laughs> forming a, a buckyball very much inspired by Buckminster Fuller, again, tying back to many different historical notions of spaceship Earth and his sense of principled optimism. But these buckyball shapes are formed from tiles, and that fundamentally allows us to build space architecture that is bigger than our biggest rocket payload fairing. And Mm. not only can you build larger scale structures, unlike inflatable habitats, which also have that principle, you can reconfigure them. So if you had a cupola there yesterday and tomorrow you're going to have a conference in space and you need a docking port and, you know, an airlock, you can depressurize the structure, pop off a tile and pop on a new tile. It's that combination of large scale growth and reconfigurability that really captured my interest as a PhD student. And we have been working on miniaturized and now ever larger incarnations of that hardware. I suspect Bucky would be very proud. Tensegrity indeed. (laughs) It is a marvelous achievement, the initiative and the projects that are represented in this terrific book. I highly recommend it. And I'm very happy to say, Ariel, that we're going to give away a copy during the What's Up segment that's going to be following in just a few moments as part of our weekly space trivia contest. But, uh, you know, you may not win the contest. Only one person gets to do that. But as of October 12th, you'll be able to find Into the Anthropocosmos, a whole space catalog from the MIT Space Exploration Initiative from MIT Press, probably from all the usual places. Uh, We've been talking to the founder and director 
of the Space Exploration Initiative at MIT. Ariel Ekbloth, thank you so much. Uh, I love your vision. I love your principled optimism. And I look forward to talking again. Matt, thank you so much. It's such an honor to engage with the Planetary Society. It's been a huge part of my childhood and now my adulthood. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's Ariel Ekbloth founder and director of MIT's Space Exploration Initiative, and author-editor of Into the Anthropocosmos, which you'll have a chance to win when Bruce joins us in a minute with What's Up. This is Planetary Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, editorial director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. From missions arriving at Mars to new frontiers in human spaceflight, 2021 has been an exciting year for space science and exploration. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. What were your favorite moments? You can cast your vote right now at planetary.org slash best of 2021 and help choose the year's best space images, mission milestones, memes, and more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2021. Thanks. It is time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. So here is Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Welcome and uh, happy uh, Thanksgiving, since uh, you and I are about 24 hours away from uh, Turkey Day here in the U.S. And happy Thanksgiving to you as well, Matt. I am thankful for you and all of our listeners. I can't say things, and that sounds sarcastic. I'm sorry. I really mean it. (laughs) No, I know you were sincere with that, but now you can talk about the night sky and be as sarcastic as you like. Oh, the night sky, the planets just stink right now. They are, there's nothing interesting. If you look over in the west after sunset, it is unlikely you're going to see super bright Venus and above it to its upper left, <laughs> yellowish Saturn and that pesky bright Jupiter all in a line getting closer over the coming weeks. All right, I'm kidding. It's it's wonderful. It's spectacular. I go out every evening to check it out. In the pre-dawn, though, we can complain about Mars because Mars, I looked ahead. Mars is hanging out low on the horizon in the pre-dawn east. Man, it just hangs out there for the next several months. So if you've got a clear view to the horizon, just eat up Mars. But if you don't, uh, Mars will be back someday. And uh, finally, for our listeners in the Uh, southern Atlantic Ocean and uh, portions of Antarctica, there will be a total solar eclipse on December 4th. So check it out. And they'll be partial in the southern portions of continents down that direction. I miss the the partial lunar eclipse that was largely uh, complete. I mean, at 97%, I heard, at max, if you were lucky. I just didn't get up. But then I heard the next day that there was a lot of... um, cloud cover in our area anyway, and I probably wouldn't have been able to see it. Did you catch it? I did. I was up working late, got some nice pictures of it with the Pleiades. It still got that bright rim because it wasn't fully total. So you didn't miss anything, Matt. It stunk. It was terrible. Let's move on to this week in space history. Three years ago, 2018, the 
InSight lander landed on Mars to start doing geophysics on Mars. And it's uh, still grooving along. On to random space fact. I'm not excited about this, Matt. It's more sarcasm. Have you been thinking lately about the center of the Earth? Because maybe you should. Because the center of the Earth is as hot or hotter than the surface, or really the photosphere, of the sun. Center of the Earth, hotter, as hot or hotter than the surface of the sun. That's not true, according to Arne Sacknusson, who said that uh, uh, against all theory, uh, it actually gets cooler as you go down, which is why you can find entire oceans and dinosaurs and things like that. Did you ever read Journey to the Center of the Earth? It's a great book. I, I did. It, it, it had some minor scientific flaws. Um, <laughs> but it was a great adventure. It was a great adventure. And uh, there's a lovely movie with uh, Brandon Fraser and then some kind of thing with The Rock. I only saw the old version, which was, uh, they took itself properly too seriously. By the way, great random space fact. Oh, thank you. Let's get on to some great trivia. Well, some kind of positive, negative, somber trivia in the end. I asked you, who is the first Soviet cosmonaut to fly two orbital space missions? How'd we do, Matt? We got a very nice response to this. And of course, everybody pointed out the uh, good news, bad news aspect of, uh, of this question. Got this from Robert Mayer in Idaho. He says, this has to be one of the saddest trivia contests I've heard. To think he survived the flight, Voskhod won, with the spacesuit issues that he ran into, but died on his next flight when the parachutes failed. And who are we talking about here, Bruce? Vladimir Komarov, a Soviet cosmonaut. He commanded Voskhod 1, which was the first spacecraft carrying more than one crew member, had its own issues, as referred to there, and uh, became the first Soviet cosmonaut to fly in space twice and the first to orbit twice when he was the solo person flying on Soyuz 1 in its first test flight in a parachute failure. Caused a crash that caused him to be, unfortunately, the first human to die in related to space flight. Yeah. We heard from a whole bunch of people, including uh, Luca Rossigno and, and Laura Dodd, that uh, he knew the ship was unsafe. I guess it was common knowledge. I've read about this. There were a lot of complaints by the other yeah. cosmonauts. But, uh, you know, the uh, regime said, nope, got to move forward. And uh, there were lots and lots of problems before the parachutes failed. Uh, but a lot of people said he knew the ship was unsafe, but flew anyway to protect his friend Yuri Gagarin, because I guess Yuri would have been the one who would have flown on that flight if Vladimir had not. So uh, particularly sad. Robert Mayer, it's good news for you because uh, it's your first time win. And that means we're going to be sending you one of those uh, kick asteroid uh, rubber asteroids from the Planetary Society. So congratulations. We're ready for another one of these. You want something a little bit lighter this time, perhaps? I, I feel like I brought everyone down um, while well, maybe learning some things. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, here you go. It is time, once again, Matt, once again to play Where in the Solar System? <laughs> so, here's your question. Where in the Solar System, and this is always excluding anything that happens to be named this on Earth, where in the Solar System is there a feature named after Dr. Seuss? <laughs> who, by the way, probably was not a real doctor. 
but I just have to note that. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Look up the wonderful sculpture of Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, outside the Geisel Library that looks like a spaceship uh, at the uh, at UC San Diego, University of California, San Diego. Yeah, look it up. He's got somebody uh, interesting uh, looking over his shoulder as he sits at his uh, drafting table where he did his work. You have this time until the 1st of December, believe it or not, Wednesday, December 1st at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And you've already heard the prize. You heard me mention it to our our wonderful guest today, Ariel Ekblah, the director of the Space Exploration Initiative at MIT. It's uh, the book that I'm holding up for Bruce right now, and you will get a copy of it if you are the winner this week. Into the Anthropocosmos, a whole space catalog from the MIT Space Exploration Initiative with a foreword by astronaut Katie Coleman. It's published by MIT Press. No surprise there. Good luck. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about little bugs flying around my head. Thank you, and good night. That's Bruce Betts with uh, things always flying around in and outside his head. He's the (laughs) chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. Well played, sir. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who know that getting called a space cadet is a high compliment. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.